Welcome to Story Story Night, where you hear true stories on a theme recorded live on stage and without notes. I'm your host, Jody Eichelberger. On this podcast, our featured storytellers pack some atomic power in the launch of our flagship season, Brave the Elements. On November 27th, 2018 at Jump in downtown Boise, these storytellers got into their element with stories inspired by the theme Carbon. Here are our featured storytellers, Rima Zaman, Tom Bysak, and Andrew Cousins. Please welcome to our stage our first featured storyteller, Rima Zaman. My name is Rima Zaman, and I am the author of the memoir, I Am Yours, and here is my story. When my husband and I got married, he announced that he wouldn't be buying me a ring because he didn't want to participate in blood diamonds. I remember biting back my words that not all diamonds have to be blood diamonds, but I bit back my words because I knew better than to speak. I knew that were I to speak, he would only use my words against me as proof of my insolence, proof of my ingratitude, proof of my selfishness, proof of my misbehavior. So I kept quiet. We were married on January 4, 2010, in the dead of the New York winter. Once married, we moved onto his sailboat, which was parked on the ice with a beautiful view of the Statue of Liberty. Mind you, it was a sailboat, not a houseboat, 29 feet in length. It was tiny, and we didn't have any heating or plumbing. To stay warm, he figured out how to line the entire inside of the sailboat with electric heaters and space blankets. Uh, Space blankets. Space heaters. (laughs) Electric blankets and space heaters. I'm pretty sure we were a fire hazard. To cook our meals, we had a hot plate and a pressure cooker, and life was sweet and simple. He had recently purchased a half-burned barn in upstate New York using bank loans and a hefty gift from his mother. He had this goal of turning this barn, which had been eaten up by a fire in the 80s. Half of it was completely dark and pitch black. He wanted to rebuild it into a family home for us and our future kids. So every day, he would drive upstate to work on the barn, and I would walk the two miles in the snow to the nearest subway to go to my nannying job. In the evenings, we'd meet back at the barn. He'd work on architectural plans, and I'd write on my laptop to work on an essay or a song, or I'd work on my drawings. I had started selling my art for much-needed cash. I use pen and pencil for my drawings, And I love how graphite is actually a form of carbon. And carbon, when exposed to extreme heat and enormous pressure, becomes diamonds. (laughs) I would think of this while I would be working on a drawing, while I would be pressing down on the page with a piece of charcoal or a pencil. Graphite, under enormous pressure, becomes art. Art is, after all, the act of turning pain into poetry. The winter shifted into the spring, and we moved out of the sailboat and into his VW bus, parked in front of the barn. 
We were living quite luxuriously, obviously. <laughs> These warmer months were good for us. I would run through the woods surrounding our barn, and he would work on the barn. And the days were long, and the work was hard, and this hard work tempered my husband's moods. He grew into a better man every time he felt like he had a clear purpose in life. It was when that purpose slipped away, or he let it slip away, that he would slip into shadow. Spring shifted into summer, summer into fall, and lo and behold, money for the barn ran out. My husband had a habit of using part of the monthly loan, which was meant for construction materials and hired labor. He would use it on drinking instead, and on lavish dinners at different restaurants that he would go to by himself while I would be at my nannying job. He enjoyed going by himself because it would allow him the freedom to talk to the other people he'd find there, mainly other women. He would spend $100 here, 100 there, talking and laughing and flirting with other women while I was taking care of other people's children, working so hard to make pennies to support our life together. The further he let things slip away, the further he slipped into shadow. The further he slipped into shadow, the further I grew away from him and into my work. I started writing more. I started drawing more. My drawings became more dark, more complex, and they improved. And soon I was selling them for larger and larger amounts, beginning initially at $100, moving all the way up to $5,000. And with every sale, my husband grew both happy and resentful. My growing talent both impressed and insulted him. It's like he thought there was only space for one person in our life, and that my growing talent threatened him. The more threatened he became, the tighter he began to squeeze, to trap, to win choke. He started me calling his wife for greensies, not for realsies, to remind me that my green card had been procured through marriage, Wife for greensies, not for realsies, to remind me that my ability to live and work in the United States was dependent on him. Wife for greensies, not for realsies, to remind me that I was tied and beholden to him, and that were I to speak out of line, I could be rejected and even deported. Wife for greensies, to remind me that power only responds to power, and that in his eyes, as a Bangladeshi immigrant wife to his white male American superior privilege, I was powerless. Additionally, his habit for women had grown stronger. He had started bringing home fistfuls of receipts with other women's names and numbers on them, and he would brandish these handfuls of names in front of my face like medals from a successful day. But then, the more abusive he became, the more loudly my inner voice began to speak. My inner voice started speaking so loudly, so insistently, as if to warn me, protect me, comfort me, until suddenly I was waking up with fully formed essays delivered onto the doorstep of my brain. And my sole task was to take dictation from my inner voice. These essays were meticulously sculpted exposés and debates on love, partnership, marriage, my marriage, my parents' marriage, and the lasting effects of unhealed trauma 
of intergenerational trauma, and how, if we let it go, it will return as a repeated cycle of self-harm and punishment in the form of abusive relationships. It was as though my inner voice had compressed all my lived and learned knowledge and synthesized them with my education as a women's studies major in college and delivered these essays to embolden my spirit. Carbon under pressure becomes diamond. As I wrote and read back these essays, I began to fill with the clarity and validation I needed to realize that contrary to what he was doing, I was not a worthless human being after all. Contrary to what he was saying, I was not dependent and powerless after all. Contrary to what he believed, I was not a forgettable mundane piece of earth, but rather a jewel in the making. The more abusive he became, the more I wrote. The more I wrote, the clearer I grew. I grew so clear that I began to refract light like a diamond will when held up to the sun. I began running longer and longer miles through the woods surrounding our home. As I ran, I would recite essays and songs that I had written. I love a mean, mean man, I gave him all I am. He holds my voice in his hands, I need an exit plan. You gotta run, baby, run, run, baby, better run, baby. Run, run, baby, better run, baby. Run, run, baby, better run. Cause he's coming for you. With every lyric, every story, Every song, every essay, every time foot hit upon ground, I felt myself growing stronger. I felt the muscles and tendons in my body become more alert, more confident. I realized that should I need to, should I run to, should I want to, I could run away from him and toward my freedom. Carbon under pressure becomes diamond. The impact of body upon earth was enhancing me. Winter arrived, and soon it was Valentine's Day, 2011. My husband picked me up from the train station after a long day of nannying for me and bartending for him. In the car, on the way to the barn, he brandished that day's fistful of women in front of my face. I kept quiet, too tired, too cold to speak. We arrived at the barn, and we walked through the snow and over the wooden plank that existed in place of steps and entered the structure. Inside the barn, the air smelled like something was dying. Love, perhaps. Tucked in the deep left corner of the barn was our trusty queen-size mattress. Surrounding the mattress were space heaters and piles of bricks. Strung from the rafters here and there were naked light bulbs. I had memorized to walk around these light bulbs with my eyes closed because the burning glass promised to singe the skin if touched. All around us, due to the fire, big black patches of coal and burned wood kept us company. It was like the walls of our home had been licked by darkness. For Valentine's Day, I had baked two heart-shaped cakes, 
One for the boy I nannied and one for my husband. My husband took his cake, reclined on the bed, and began eating the cake using his fingers, all the while regaling me with details about the other women he had flirted with that night. You better run, baby, run, run, baby, better run, baby, run, run, baby, better run, baby, run, run, baby, better run, cause he's coming for you. Suddenly, I felt the rush, the surge of the past merging with the present, of pain turning into poetry, of words compressing into power. No! The words sounded so foreign, so unlike me, like a small, small, cold, hard pebble perched on my tongue, waiting to be spat out. What? He frowned. No, you are not the one who decides my identity. I am the author of my life, and I was born for a story so much bigger than you. To speak is a revolution, and it was time to ignite mine. The first no is always the hardest, but the voice is a muscle, and the more you use it, the stronger it grows. That first time that I said no to my husband, he laughed and then grew angry. But I kept saying no, 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 until finally we separated. Carbon, when exposed to extreme heat and enormous pressure, becomes diamond. I am so happy that he never bought me a ring. I am and I contain so much more than anything he could have given me. I am so grateful that he destroyed us. Had I remained his wife, I would have lived a smaller life. I don't know if I'm a leader as much as I am a messenger. And perhaps that's what a leader is. A conduit of a larger story. I stand here as a mirror and a reminder of the fire and the light within every woman. My body and spirit were designed for resilience, designed to turn pain into poetry, wound into wisdom, fury into fortitude, grit into grace, past into the future. I wasn't born to be a victim. I wasn't born to be a survivor. I was born to be a warrior. Born to grow stronger with every wound, every obstacle, every abuser, every insult that the world presses down upon me. Carbon, when exposed to extreme heat and enormous pressure, becomes diamonds. I am a woman, and we women are diamonds of the highest shine. We don't need to run anymore, my love. It is time to rise. Tom Bysack. Good evening. Um, thanks for coming out. This isn't a success story. It's um, kind of a story about my personal collision with luck. In 1989, I went on a motorcycle ride with the sheriff of Canyon County, and he took me all over the place showing me uh, places that had criminal issues. And eventually we ended up on South Canada Road, and we took that all the way to the end. And at the end of South Canada Road, which is our uh, county line, by the way, um, is Jensen Cliffs. And Jensen Cliffs plummet 300 feet straight down into the Snake River Canyon. 
Now, I had been down to that part of the county many times, but I had never seen that canyon from that perspective. The Snake River emerges from steep canyon walls and then bounces over graveyard rapids and then proceeds on west where the, where the valley opens up. Right across the river is uh, an extinct volcano, 15 million years old, part of the Yellowstone um, uh, hotspot complex. It's a fragment of a supervolcano. And down in the bottom of the canyon are miles and miles and miles of Bonneville flood melon gravel. Because of the cliffs and that, um, that volcano, uh, their arrangement is in a big V, so it's a Venturi flume. So when the Bonneville flood came crashing through there 15,000 years ago, it lost its energy and dumped its whole bedload down there. There was also a bridge down there. It was a huge bridge, it's 500 feet long, 500 tons, made of steel, and it was erected with, at, during the same era and with the same techniques as the Eiffel Tower. Gary leaned off his bike and he, and he said to me, this is the most unwholesome place in Canyon County. <laughs> I saw geology and I saw biology, I saw history and prehistory. I saw a place that if I was a prehistoric man, I wanted to fish because those rapids were gonna back up all the migrating fish. And I didn't get it and I didn't ask him because I do better than to challenge the sheriff. So I looked a little closer, and down there in the bottom of the canyon, on the terraces, were two little shacks. And all around the shacks were a halo of trash. And I saw a bus body, and a black Cadillac, and a bunch of car bodies, farm equipment, countless appliances, piles and piles and piles of construction refuse, and I don't know how many paint cans. And Gary leaned in again, and he said, very bad things happen in those cabins. Why don't you make a park out of this? I'm a biologist, I don't build parks. But that's a dare, a dare from the sheriff. And I, I kind of, well, whatever. And we worked our way down that canyon and we knocked around in that garbage for a little while. But it wasn't the garbage that was interesting. It was the bare ground, the ground between the bushes. If you look really close at that ground, it was covered with tiny little stones, a lithic scatter. And I looked real closely and I didn't recognize a single rock. All of those rocks were not native to, the, to Canyon County or that Snake River Canyon. They were exotic. And mixed in with those rocks were tiny flecks of charcoal, and then some bigger stuff too. And I'm thinking charcoal, a lot of, they burn in trash down here, or is it campfires, or wildland fires? And then it dawned on me, uh, this is lus. This is windblown material, it's fluid. I remember this stuff. It, anything that's in that column of, of soil is going to churn and move around. This could be ancient hearth sites. So we messed around down there for a while and then I went home and I thought about that park there and I thought about it seriously and I made myself some notes and then I sketched out a rough master plan of what a park would look like down there. The next morning I woke up and I painted that park and what it would look like if I ever built it. And a few days later, I had a meeting with the Canyon County Board of Commissioners and the um, director of Canyon County Parks, Recreation, and Waterways. And I, ex I explained to them my vision of a park that would celebrate the natural and cultural resources of our region. And dang it, before we left that meeting, I was the new Canyon County Park Planner for Canyon County. <laughs> I had a job, I had a career. I also had a dare, I had a vision, and I had an opportunity, and I thought, well, what the hell? <laughs> I'm gonna build a park. And I knew the first thing I had to do was deal with that bridge because that bridge was a, um, 
an attractive nuisance. It was a jungle gym. It was 500 tons of steel, 70 feet above the river, and every kid that would go down to that beautiful park that I had painted was going to climb on that bridge, and it was unsafe. So I had to do something about that first before I did anything else. So I did a little research, and I found out that that bridge was built by Colonel William Dewey in 1897 to haul gold and silver ore out of his um, mines in, in the Owyhee County. It was part of the Boise-Nampa-Owyhee Railroad, and he went bust because his mine went dry. And so the Union Pacific picked up that bridge, and um, they ran it until 1948, when it was no longer economical to haul agricultural products on that line. And then Owyhee County got it. And Owyhee County decided that that would be cool to scrap for nine cents a pound. The Idaho State Historical Society said, no, wait a minute, guys. This is a National Historic Register place. Um, it's a Parker Through Trust Bridge, a very rare bridge. Only five companies in the US would even uh, bid on its construction. And it was the tallest railroad bridge in the nation when it was completed. So I said, yeah, this is where I'll start. So I went to the Idaho State Historical Society. And of course, what I did was laid out my idea about a park that would celebrate the natural and cultural resources of Southwest Idaho. And before I left that meeting, I owned the bridge. <laughs> I, they sold it to me for a dollar. And I had to borrow that, but I, and I did. But, so now I was on my way. I, I, was, I had a job and I had a bridge and I, and I had to do something about that. Um, the first thing I did is I wrote a grant to the National Trust for Historic Preservation in San Francisco, and they gave me money to hire JUB Engineering to make a plan for a, a walkway and railing system across that bridge so I could make it safe. They said, sure, we can do that, but we need to know the distance between the bays. How big are those bays? Now, a bay on, those bridge, on that bridge are the upright girders, so there's a two trusses, they're a Parker through truss, and then there's a bunch of girders that or columns that stick up and hold that upright. The distance between those girders are the bay. So it was my homework to go figure out how, what those distances were. So I got out my Allidade Transit, yeah, I have one, and I tried to, uh, tried to do some fancy mathematics and figure it out, but parallax got me, and I, I couldn't do the math, and so I knew I'd have to directly measure that, that bridge. So I got my 100-foot tape, and I went out to the bridge, and I looked at what I had left of the bridge, and what there were, what was there were two nine-inch wide I-beams, three feet deep, 500 feet long, straight across the river, eight feet apart. And then the bays are out there someplace, and there's a lot of them. So I drove a nail in the dirt, and I hooked up my 100-foot um, tape, and I started to back out on, on that nine-inch rail, the top of that girder. Now that was, I liked the rusty kind of pitted stuff, but the uh, red lead paint fragments that were still down there, they were kind of slick. And the worst part were, was the carbon, carbon black original paint. It was still on there in places too, so that the tread was not real, real, uh, real good. So I backed out and I measured that first bay and it was 20 foot six. And that wasn't too bad, so I backed out until my tape read 41 feet and that was the second bay. And then I backed out onto the third one and it was 61 feet six inches and then I backed out onto the fourth a few feet and the wind picked up. And I thought, well, I'm 70 feet from the shore, 70 feet up, a lot of steel to bounce off of before I hit that cold, fast Snake River. I'm done, and I wound up my tape. I called up JUB Engineering and told them, 20 foot six, every one of them, I saw the sequence. <laughs> Guaranteed. 
So they started the plan, they gave me a spec list. I bought some very expensive wood that would last 100 years. If I was, if I was gonna do this project, it was only gonna happen once in my lifetime, so I bought real good wood. And then I went to the Idaho military and I actually convinced them that this would be a great training project and a great <laughs> contribution to the community if they would build my bridge for me. Because I can't afford people that work high steel and you got guys that think that's fun. So <laughs> what do you say, guys? And they said, they swarmed on it. They said, yes, we're on it. And within days, I had US Navy SEALs at Lake Lowe SEALs, the Seabees, the Seabees were there. The Seabees were putting the whole thing together. They took every little piece and, and they, they prefabricated the entire walkway in chunks. And then we helicoptered it down to the, to the river or ran it out there on tank movers where the combat engineers took over. And I had combat engineers from Idaho, New Hampshire, Vermont, and Tennessee work an entire summer putting the pieces of that bridge or, together. So the first bay filled up perfectly, and so did the second, and the third was working out, and I thought, this is a snap, and the fourth didn't fit so well, and the fifth didn't fit at all. <laughs> and there were a lot to go, because that, you know, that's only the first 60 feet, and it's 500 feet long. So I realized that not all the bays are 20 foot six. Matter of fact, none of the other bays are 20 foot six. <laughs> All the other bays are different from each other too, so that makes it even tougher. So I grabbed up the colonel and the top kick um, sergeant, Bob, and we went to Cook's Two Hole Saloon in Melba with the blueprints and cut them up into little pieces and scotch taped them back together and we missed it by that much. And so on September 1st, 1991, we completed the bridge. There's not a hole in it that big. We actually put a patch in there so it, you can get across. And once that bridge was completed and I had a safe walkway for pedestrians, horses, and a paramedics van, then I knew I could proceed with the rest of the park. I had secretly been proceeding with the rest of the park all the time, so I was pretty well along anyway. I had done some land acquisition. I needed to do a little bit more. Um, I, we built a, a boating facility, a, um, a visitor center, a solar uh, uh, power plant, so the whole thing is uh, net metered. Um, we, uh, I established a... Uh, nationally uh, recognized uh, educational program uh, down there, a nationally recognized conservation program down there, a uh, tight partnership with Boise State University Department of uh, Anthropology, the Desert Studies Institute and Extended Studies, uh, also a partnership with the College of Western Idaho Anthropology Club, and we did tons and tons of research, and the American Rock Art Research Association helped me with uh, identifying and documenting 5,000 petroglyphic elements down there. If that's not enough, we built a museum. A museum, $1.5 million museum with an indoor classroom and an outdoor classroom and a projection area, an exhibit hall, a research library, mezzanine, and ready? Dormitories for 16 students and faculty researchers. Now our oldest carbon date down there, well, we don't know what the oldest one is because they're still working, but we have a range of about 1,000 years to about 5,000 years. Those are the real common ones, but it's continuously occupied. So for 5,000 continuous years to present, people have been down there, never a break in population. Now our lithic material and our faunal material from the excavations lets us push that date back a little bit. So it might be 7,500 years or 8,000 or 10,000 years, but for all of that time, People were down there, and what were they doing? They were all nomadic. They were camping and hunting and fishing and learning those lifeway skills it takes to survive in the Great Basin. If you go to Celebration Park today, 
you have the opportunity to camp and hunt and fish and learn those lifeway skills to survive in the Great Basin. Nothing has happened differently in all of those eight to 10,000 years. What did we really do down there? We preserved the longest running place-based tradition in Idaho. Thank you. Andrew Cousins. Good evening. My name is Andrew. Um, I am the author of A Failed State. Uh, it's a novel, and uh, unfortunately it's not an Idaho publishing company. It's Aviva New York. I apologize. Uh, however, uh, it is available through afailedstate.com, or of course it's also an ebook on uh, iTunes, Amazon, and uh, Barnes and Noble. So, or at the table at the exit, if you're interested. <laughs> so here's my story. <clears throat> our CASA, our unmarked CASA aircraft, shuddered as the landing gear dropped from its belly. The CASA looked more like the box an airplane came in than an airplane itself. When the loadmaster flashed two minutes out, myself and two other teammates chambered rounds in our HK-416 rifles and Glock-19 pistols. I had spent hours the day before cleaning every speck of carbon I could out of those barrels. I didn't want the weapon systems to fail when I needed them most. After all, we were inbound for a thousand yards of century-old asphalt in some remote desert, and there was no official American presence in the country at that time. When the CASA touched down and the loadmaster dropped the ramp, I exited and marveled at how the Milky Way galaxy was airbrushed across the night sky. The absence of human lights or outbuildings as far as the eye could see, only accentuating, accentuating this. Suddenly, two sets of headlights pierced the darkness from the opposite end of the runway and approached. It was our teammates that approached and loaded all our kit on board. We exited the area as the CASA prepared to take off and we awaited a second aircraft, possibly a contract transport that had all our, all our supplies for 60 days worth of an expeditionary stay. As I sat in that back seat, I thought about my family, my two sons, and the daughter we just adopted. I didn't always wanna be a father of an adopted child. In fact, when it was suggested, I was dead set against it. You see, my daughter's biological father had spent 90 days in an expensive rehab clinic and nine months sober before he decided he needed to take a drink again. He had to approach his wife and explain this, and she demanded that he sign over the rights to his two existing children before he did anything. He reluctantly agreed, quit his job, and found what he considered meaningful work in a bar where he could drink and serve patrons not too far from where he lived. That's where he met my child's mother, biological mother, and they drank through two of her three trimesters before she realized she was even pregnant with his child. He had no intention of ever seeing this through, however. 
My wife's brother, who was also the father of my adopted child, had attempted his life twice before he finally drank a fifth of whiskey, loaded up in his truck, and drove a dangerous stretch of Idaho Road home before rolling the vehicle and being ejected. He was held in the arm by a stranger for 30 minutes before he succumbed to his wounds. My wife is distraught, but she was convinced this child needed to be ours. I knew that we were probably looking at a baby that certainly had fetal alcohol syndrome, and I didn't want anything to do with that. After all, I was on my third of what would be 21 deployments over seven years. I was lucky if I was home for two months out of the year, and I only had, already had two boys I could barely care for and see on a regular basis. Hell no, I wasn't going to adopt this girl. She made me promise that I would pray about it, and I promised one prayer. Well, that night, I went to the fire department where I ran 24-hour calls once a week in exchange for a medical currency that I used while I was downrange. And I sat right next to my captain. And I said, hey, what's up? And he said, guess what? I said, what? He said, we're adopting the foster child we had cared for for the last nine months. And I said, well, what, what was the justification for that? He said, well, one, we love her. And two, he quoted a Bible verse about God mandating the care of the sick, the lame, the widow, the orphan. That was all the answer I needed. And I was in, despite any problems with the pregnancy or what might happen afterwards. And I went home and informed my wife that I was committed. I did ask, though, I said, listen, I'm leaving for Afghanistan this time, and I want you to send a photo of the baby so I know what I'm up against when I come home. I asked this because I understood fetal alcohol syndrome to have visual cues, especially in the face. And I just wanted to really know what I was facing. So I left for deployment, uh, and I spent half that deployment wondering what, how things would turn out before I got an email saying that she was rushing to the hospital so that her, the mother of my daughter would sign over the rights to her as soon as she was born. I reminded my wife of that promise, and she agreed. I made sure I was assigned to that compound's quick reaction force, which spent the entire day around the compound so that I could check my email, which I did probably 20 or 30 times that night. When I finally got the email and the file attached, I opened it and saw a beautiful baby girl, and I was in love right then and there. And when I returned and held her for the first time, that sealed the deal. In fact, it got so bad, because I spent so much time with her that it started affecting my marriage. But I saw something in her that I saw in myself being adopted as well. It completed me. She was a carbon copy of the things that she did. At night, she would pull all her toys and prized possessions into her bed because she feared on some level that they wouldn't be there in the morning. And I, I understood that. I prepared to leave for my next deployment, and my wife is still grieving over her brother and started to take a drink again. You see, she was an alcoholic too, but had been clean through 
five years of pregnancies and infants and toddlers. I overlooked it because I felt she deserved it for what she had been through. And on that next deployment back to Afghanistan, I made it halfway through that sucker before another email arrived, frantically telling me to phone home. When I did, my wife informed me that her father, who had been in prison for several years because of substance abuse, had returned home, spent a year in a halfway house, and getting to know our daughter and our children before he overdosed on methadone. I asked her if she wanted me to come home, because I wanted to. I wanted to be there. But in a very monotone voice, she begged me to, to stay and finish out my deployment, and she would take care of it. After all, I was the only breadwinner in the family, and we depended on, solely on my income. I agreed, and when I came home, the drinking was much, much worse. Again, we fought constantly, and she implored me to spend more time with my sons because I was spending all my time with my little girl that wasn't even my flesh and blood. We made it through four more deployments for a total of 21 deployments over seven years before I was home for the holidays. I did some training with my unit in Virginia Beach, came home and spent Thanksgiving and Christmas with the family. After New Year's, I had nine days until I needed to leave again, what we like to call pop smoke when, the signal, when we signal the helicopter to come in. It was a week after the New Year, and I was sitting on the couch that evening when I heard the gunshot. I ran to the master bedroom, and in the closet, my wife had, had died from a self-inflicted gunshot wound because of her own addiction. When the blood alcohol content was revealed to me through the toxicology report, she was a 0.4. That's three bottles of wine, because that's all she drank. And I don't remember ever seeing that much wine in her house. So somewhere along the line, I was missing the cue. And suddenly, I was a father to three children, no 20-second deployment, no future income, no way to provide for the children that I would care for that I hadn't seen in seven years for most of the year. As I sat in the back seat of that SUV and awaited for that aircraft, we heard it in the distance. It came in and turned on its landing lights at the last possible moment. It was an old Soviet bomber, an Antonov 7 Victor, and it was coming in at too steep of an angle. As it came in, it tail struck the, the, the runway landed on its own landing gear and sheared them off clean. Sparks and flames erupted from underneath that underbelly, and by the time the aircraft came to rest almost opposite our SUVs, it was completely engulfed in flames. We couldn't do anything. We were just six individuals sitting in two vehicles without any way to extinguish the fire, and I was convinced they were all dead. Slowly, I saw a foot kick out the nose cone of that aircraft, and one by one, all four of those Russians, their hair and their coveralls smoldering, popped out of that nose cone and came sauntering over, speaking in Russian and swigging from two vodka bottles they had in their hands. They had burns on their faces, on their arms, but they were carrying on like this shit happened every single day. 
I was in awe. And I knew looking at them right then and there that if I didn't or if something didn't break the cycle, I was going to die over there. Because you see, I was an addict too. Only I was addicted to the risk. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Story Story Night receives support from the Boise Arts and History Department and is funded in part by the Idaho Commission on the Arts and the National Endowment for the Arts. Thank you to our media sponsor, Radio Boise, our season sponsor, Pettit Realty Group, and the Carbon Show sponsors, Apple Plumbing and Amberjack Publishing. Podcast production is by Stephen Baldessari. Our theme song was composed by Dan Costello, and our musical guest is the Renaissance Players. Support this storied program, get tickets to our live show, and stay tuned at www.storystorynight.org or on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Story Story Night. You can also donate by phone, text FLAGSHIP to 41444. Thanks for being a part of our story.